0: A few weeks ago, I was asked to give a public talk, and given the title, The Possibility of Inner Contentment, which I thought was a nice title, and if you think about that for yourself, The Possibility of Inner Contentment, it sounds good, and I would imagine... (laughs) And I would imagine in some way it could cover most of the reasons most of us would come on retreat. So just I'd ask you to for a moment reflect on when you personally think about what inner contentment would be or freedom or enlightenment or peace. Do you have some clear sense of what it is you're looking for? Or some maybe not so clear Sort of subversive notions that can actually be driving us in the wrong direction, just begin to have a sense for yourself, what is the mind actually thinking of with in inner contentment? And Thich Nhat Hanh, meditation is to be aware of what is going on in our bodies, our feelings, our mind, and the world. Each day, 40,000 children die of hunger. The former superpowers still have more than 50,000 nuclear warheads, enough to destroy the earth many times. Yet, the sunrise is beautiful, and the rose that bloomed this morning along the wall is a miracle. Life is both dreadful and wonderful. To practice meditation is to be in touch with both these aspects. To live an awakened life is to be awake to both these aspects here, on the cushion and in our life. As a friend of mine said, uh, someone we met when I were talking about this talk, he said, Well, when things are going smoothly in life, anyone can experience inner contentment. So looking and seeing how much of our unspoken idea is that things are going to get better, and that that somehow is going to be a manifestation of our awakening. Look at the Buddha's life after he was awakened, the supremely enlightened one, free of all suffering. His life wasn't that nothing happened. You know, he. Um, as Guy mentioned, had plenty of physical problems, his back, he had back aches, he had headaches. Sometimes he'd say to Ananda, you give a talk, I have to go rest my back. He clanned, from both his mother and father's side, the clans. people were often at war with each other. Many people would be killed, he'd go and try to mediate. There was a lot of quarreling from time to time within the Sangha, I know, hard to believe, but even then. <laughs> And actually, if you read a lot of the Vinaya, the rules, how the monks and nuns' rules came to be, a lot of it is some of the monks would go to the blue and say, so-and-so is doing such-and-such, you know, what should we do about that? And he'd, it would be stuff that really wasn't so great. You'd say, okay, we need to make a rule. But there was really this sense, you know, of sniping. <laughs> and um, in fact, one of his cousins, David Devadatta, was so jealous of him that he tried to divide the sangha to get people to follow himself he actually tried to kill the buddha the buddha's two main disciples sariputta and moggallana moggallana supposedly being the strongest one in psychic powers was actually murdered in the old age and sariputta also died before the buddha and the buddha experienced their loss and in the end they all died they've all been dead for a long time
1: (laughs) (laughs) including
0: the Buddha. (laughs) So, all through his life, stuff happened. You know? Clearly, the freedom and inner contentment the Buddha is talking about is something else. It's of another order altogether. And it begins by our being willing, learning how to stay awake, connected, and intimately present in the midst of the beautiful and the horrific. Both of which are difficult, actually. But the horrible stuff, the painful stuff, is generally more difficult for us to be open and present with, generally. Which is why when the Buddha was formulating his succinct way of describing how to awaken, what it is that keeps us caught in suffering when he delineated his Four Noble Truths, which is what I'm talking about tonight, the first one being the truth that basically stuff happens. And it doesn't stop happening just because our hearts and minds are awakened. So I find it, I always have found it really interesting, First, that of all the things that Buddha knew that he could talk about, that he thought would free our hearts from confusion and suffering, the first thing he chooses to talk about of only four things is there's a lot of anguish in this world. That our experience, our body, our mind, our feelings, other people, all experience is basically inherently unreliable if you're looking to it for any security, any lasting happiness, any resting place whatsoever. No aspect of our experience can give us that. None. This is the first thing he chooses to tell us to free our hearts. And it's one of the reasons Buddhism sometimes superficially gets the rap of being about suffering which it's not, but it's acknowledging the reality of things. And I think it's fascinating to me to look at this truth, this fact that the Buddha lays out, not conceptually, intellectually, but the whole point of it is actually how am I relating to this as a fact in my life? Never mind your whole life. How about today? How about all those moments of sitting and walking and eating and everything that's gone on today? Has anyone noticed any moments that were less than satisfying? <laughs> A couple, like one or two moments here and there that didn't quite meet the grade of what's expected, of the direction your practice should be going if you were making progress, of what would be possible what is allowed within the field of experience of contentment and happiness. If you have taken anything and put it outside of what's acceptable in the field of experience of contentment and happiness, that's the place we are lost in confusion and suffering. That's the place we're not opening to the truth. And I imagine most of us have one or two little places like that, starting from sleepiness. You know, we're not even talking the big things. Starting from your knee hurt a little bit, five minutes into the sitting, or I had a little pain in my back, or I was feeling kind of fearful. Not even the big things. So it's looking at, even though we all know that there's disease, old age, sickness, we die, we all know that we're going to be separated from those that we love, that we're going to be united with those that we do not love, or experiences that we do not love. Intellectually, we know it. But really, just look over the days in yourself. How do you relate when that happens? When something, let's just stick to the simplicity of the retreat format, because it's the same way we relate here as how we relate in our life. But the experiences are generally easier they're they're a bit smaller, or they're a bit simpler, although just as intense. I'm not saying they're not intense, but they don't tend to have the complexity of having to decide whether to keep your job or take another one. It's more, should I move or not in this sitting? Should I go to the walk-in, or should I have a cup of tea? The amount of energy that goes into relating to those is just the same, so it's a little easier to notice. Oh, maybe it's not the situation. Maybe it's how I'm relating. That could have something to do or the discomfort here, just possibly. So look at when something difficult, even a little difficult happens, how strong our tendency can be in many ways to deny it or to feel that it's a mistake, a sign of failure. I mean, you usually say when you're really suffering and a sitting, oh good, this is a good sitting because I'm paying attention to it. If you've been sitting for years, you might. But rarely do people come out of a sitting where they're restless and sleepy and their back hurts and they can't stay with it and say, well, that was a really good sitting. Now if it's pleasant, it's probably a good sitting, you know, because something nice is happening. And we tend to internalize it or deny it, or we had a conversation where one of the groups today. Many of the different ways we try to pretend we're being mindful of suffering, whether it's pain or grief or fear. But really we're saying, okay, I'll be with you as long as you go away. A kind of a bargaining, a kind of, actually sometimes just basic denial, a kind of a sort of mindfulness, or I'll look at you but not really completely open to you. All these different things. And I think a lot of it is because really deeply we haven't quite accepted that the difficult and the beautiful are both just, constantly changing parts of life. It's not a personal failure when we get sick, or when the breath gets choppy, or when we have a fantasy. You know, it's just what's happening in that moment. The tendency to deny, to deny by trying to shut out suffering, our own or another, is so deep that... It's actually quite amazing. I'll tell you a little story that happened to me one time. Some years ago, I was in the hospital, had been for a few days, and I was on IVs, and you know how over time your veins kind of collapse, and so they were trying to put in a new IV and couldn't quite get it, you know. So it's, I mean, it's painful. It's not, you know, you're not going to die from it, but it's not so pleasant. The nurses couldn't do it two, three, four times. They couldn't do it. So this nurse was like dripping sweat, and she ran out in the hall. And grabbed the doctor and brought him in to do it, and I was I was sort of out of it, but enough to think now I'm really in trouble, because who does the IVs? The nurses, doctors don't do IVs, <laughs> but I'm really in trouble. So this guy was you know jabbing around trying to do it. It was really it wasn't a good scene, <laughs> and I was a bit afraid, and I didn't say anything. But little tears just kind of rolled down, and he looked at me, it was so amazing. He says, "What's the matter with you? This doesn't hurt."
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I, I remember that because it's classic. If he let in, in other case this is my projection, right? Maybe he really thought it didn't hurt, but if he let in, that in his good intention, right, he's trying to help me, clearly not doing a good job of it, knowing that, seeing my pain, as if he let that in, it's so painful to feel that. So, really, his own pain couldn't deal with. You know, it's not okay. We're afraid of it. And that fear can bring down such a barrier that we're just completely out of touch with ourselves, with another. You see how, if we want to talk about living an awake life, we can't shut down to the pain, just like we don't shut down to the joy either. But we somehow aren't allowed to shut down selectively. We shut down to one, we shut down to all. And a lot of people have have mentioned, you know, that wanting really to open their heart is part of what brought them to this retreat. And the corollary, which people have also mentioned, opening your heart, you're much more vulnerable. That's right. There is no way around that one. There is no way around that one. And freedom isn't a way around it either. Freedom gives us the courage and the understanding that we don't need to fear or deny or even react so much to the difficult because we don't take it so personally and we don't take it so tragically because we know it's part of life and it isn't going to last. Nothing lasts. So that's sort of the other aspect of this First Noble Truth. Not only that there's, you know, physical pain, disease, death, there's also beauty, happiness, joy, and love, but that another aspect of the dukkha is the word, the unreliability or the unsatisfactory quality is that nothing really lasts very long. When I first heard many years ago when I first started practicing and I first heard so that I could understand what was being said <laughs> the, the Four Noble Truth the first one I know I didn't really get it the first time I heard it and I started practicing I was about 19 and I have had a life that was basically kind of average middle class suburban no great suffering or trauma in my personal life but the, the kind of 50s culture, you know, the Donna Reed show and stuff, where everything sort of nicey-nicey, we just don't really talk about other things. The mother of my friend down the street who committed suicide, we sort of knew that happened, you know, but it's not really brought out in the open. And so when I first started practicing, it was out of this deep sense of, um, really it was understanding on some cellular level dukkha that things were unreliable, that just going after some kind of sense of pleasure or some status or whatever didn't quite make sense because it all just vanished, and that I was truly not happy, but I couldn't look at anything in my life to complain about, (laughs) you know what I mean? So when I first heard this truth, it wasn't depressing, it was like, ah, what a relief, I'm not crazy. It's not that one has to be miserable, but there's there's an inherent unreliability in experience that as long as I'm depending on my physical health, on the health or presence of my friends and family, that other people should do what I want them to do. They should behave the way I think they should behave in order to keep things copacetic, in order for there to be happiness. Somehow they always fail to do that. Um, that there was this, this sense of, you know, things falling through and I didn't know why. So, hearing this first truth took a real burden off my heart. It's like, oh, let's look at things the way they really are, instead of pretending that if you just live your life right, everything will be good. You know? But that book, Why Did Bad Things Happen to Good People? Underlying that if I do everything right, nothing bad's going to happen? I don't think so. And it doesn't mean you're bad or you did something wrong. Things are going to happen. How we need it is the point of freedom. So there's this sense of noticing when we're in denial, seeing how that shuts down our heart to presence with ourselves, to compassion for others, to connectedness, Appreciation of life, just noticing it, not judging it. Noticing when it's too much and we can't open to it. And tuning in also the second aspect of the first truth, dukkha, that I want to talk about is is that of impermanence, which in itself is neither good nor bad. Just how things are. And I think it's a really interesting truth. Because, again, conceptually, it's a pretty easy one to get, No, that everything's changing, that nothing really stays the same. You don't find, you don't find too many people who argue with that on a conceptual level. And I know for me, I know it's true on a conceptual level. Is that how we really relate to things in our life that we like when they change? When something that's really a relationship that's really lovely somehow changes and falls apart, do we say, well, the conditions that led to the coming together of this relationship have changed. All meetings end in partings. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Maybe somewhere down the road. (laughs) But it's much easier to see what, what went wrong, who's to blame, what did I do wrong. And I mean, I'm not saying there aren't things to work on, but this sense of, Nothing should ever change. And when it does, I blew it somehow. That sense of self-judgment. Or the fear of the sadness. I find it really poignant, the fact that beautiful things end. Also, really unbeautiful things also end. But there's a kind of poignancy, uh, a feeling of loss, and even the Buddhist spoke to that. He, um, after his two main disciples died in his old age Noghalana and Sariputta he said I'm paraphrasing but something to the uh, effect that it's as if the moon and the stars have gone out of the sky a sense of loss but just how it is he didn't then go away and berate himself and beat his breast and throw the second arrow at himself and wail and say what did I do wrong you know why did they have to die yes yeah. they're here now they're gone. It's, it's a fact of life. And learning to really open into this flowing, changing nature, instead of holding ourselves away from it, is actually an opening into real intimacy, joy, deep appreciation of what's happening right now. Because we're not saying, oh no, this is happening, I have to hold on. This is good, but how can I keep it? In which case, we're already away from appreciating this. But a sense of, yes, right now, this moment, this is what there is. There's a good friend of ours who comes to retreats often, but I haven't seen him for a couple of years. He tells us the wonderful stories of his life um, about having had open heart surgery. And he's a, um, I'm not sure, he must be in his 60s. And they replaced a valve in his heart and he came out of it. And he was in intensive care. And I got him about a day or two after the surgery and something went wrong. And I don't know if you know how he was in intensive care where all the bells and whistles are going off. And he said he had a tube in every opening. And it seemed really serious. And he was about to lose consciousness. And he thought this really you know, might be it. You know, I might be about to die in fear and panic. This could be it. I might be about to die. Now, this is a, a man who didn't consider himself an eighth yogi, not someone who would come out of retreats going, wow, I had this incredible, blissful, fantastic experience, which they then can make yourself miserable the next 10 years trying to repeat, but who would <laughs> come out of retreat saying, oh, you know, I'm just plodding along, just doing my work. So he said, I'm about to die right now. Fear came pouring up, oh my God, what do I do? And he said, just he thought about, well, if this is your last breath, why not be here for it? Mm-hmm. And he just dropped into that breath. The fear went and he just was fully present for that breath. And then went unconscious, woke up. I love that story. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what else can we do? You know, all experience, wonderful, awful, they're going to be gone but the habits of mind the tendency that we've learned that all there really can be is fullness of presence wholehearted intimacy with this moment and the next moment will arise in its own time you can take care of being present with that then that's really what we're practicing here this is a laboratory for that and I think the awareness of impermanence, rather than leading us to panic, depression, and despair, can actually free us to open into our life, a moment of our life, with this attitude of wholehearted presence. I've noticed in myself that one of the kind of uh, sort of automatic or habitual responses of our heart and mind as we, well, not even aware of it, but to the unreliability, to the fact that anywhere I try and put down my claim, you know, is a little bit shaky, isn't going to last, is, is at times it is almost like a panic, a, a kind of looking in different places for something that will be reliable, that will be trustworthy, that isn't going to change, in a maybe subtle, not quite conscious way. And I, and certainly many people I've talked to, and look in yourself and see the truth for you, also bring unconsciously this mindset to our meditation practice. And I know for years, I am probably still lurking there unconsciously at times, but for years it was really conscious when I thought that, if I practice hard enough and long enough, what freedom meant is really some place where all the hoo-ha stopped. It was either a place of constant pleasant experience, because really when I thought about living an enlightened life, I really didn't think about having back aches and arthritic joints, and you know, having wars and stuff, you just kind of think of living in a cloud of compassion and, and love. I didn't feel about struggle. There was always some kind of ending place, I thought, where i finally understand everything, and it would all be over. And bringing that into how we practice, notice, as you go through the days here, when something happens that maybe in a very subtle, usually the mind doesn't say, aha, this is it, now I've got it, it's going to be this way forever. That would be too easy. You'd noticed maybe, if the mind said that. But in the slightly more subtle way, it's, oh, now I get what mindfulness is supposed to feel like. Oh, now I know what concentration is. Oh, I'm finally making progress now. I finally settled in, and now it's going along the way it should. Or even more subtle than that. Watch out. Mm -hmm. Just be aware of that, because the heart and mind is trying to land somewhere. Mm -hmm. This sense of being on shaky ground, because everything's dissolving. The, The thinking mind doesn't like that too much. We like to analyze, have you noticed? You like to analyze and figure out why and if and this, this happens and that'll happen and that happened last time, so I can assume it's going to happen this time. And then it's all nice and neat and tidy. Finish for that one. You don't like it when you
1: say, oh,
0: you've had the same pain in your back for five days. Every time it arises, it's new. Meet it fresh. You know, it fresh. I've been looking at this for four years. I don't want to meet it fresh. I know it. I know everything about it. We know nothing. We need it. It's arising in that moment for the first time ever. And it's passing. And another experience is arising for the first and last time ever. And it's passing. Can we bring that quality of freshness? Then we're really alive. Then there's not that clinging. There's not that trying to, to find a resting place. There's a lovely statement by the Buddha where he said, he or she abides in peace who does not abide anywhere. In another place he says, it's the search for abiding that's burning and restless. Giving up of that search is cool and freeing to search for somewhere, to take a stand, for something to hold on to. That's our lack of understanding of the First Noble Truth. And that's where the suffering, the anguish, the confusion that the Buddha is speaking to comes in. Change is just how it is. It's not good or bad. It's just how things are. Our lack of understanding of really living from that place is the place that we really suffer, that second dart, that second arrow that Guy talked about last night. Things change, and then we shoot another arrow at ourselves and say, no. Yosho Kanyimpo is a wonderful Tibetan teacher and has quite a sense of humor, said once, remember, whether or not you go with the flow, the flow always goes with you. We really can't step out of it. So while... The fact of change and loss, things going away, can be really plain. Again, opening to it opens us to love, to presence. This is part a long-term part of a favorite poem of mine by Galway Kinnell that speaks to that, called Little Sleephead, Head Sprouting Hair in the Moonlight. You cry, waking from a nightmare, When I sleepwalk into your room, we pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight. You cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I think you think I will never die. I think I exude to you the permanence of smoke or stars, even as my broken arms heal themselves around you. I've heard you tell the sun, don't go down, I've stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die, little Maud, and yet perhaps this is the reason you cry, this is the nightmare you wake crying from, being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. You cling to me hard as if clinging to save us. And that, to me, is what's poignant about our understanding of impermanence. It's what's poignant, to me, about our whole human condition of confusion, of delusion, of ignorance. It's said that what prompted the Buddha to teach after his awakening was compassion, because he could look around and with his great psychic powers could tell what was going on in everybody in the world and seeing that the deepest wish of each human being is to truly be happy. It's the deepest wish of all of us. But in our efforts to be happy and our lack of understanding of things as they are, of just seeing things how they are, our lack of ability to do that, the things we do to try and be happy are the very things that keep us from seeing the truth, that keep us from relaxing into things as they are. It's so poignant because things as they are, you can't change it. It's right here. There's nowhere to go. It's always accessible. And we're so busy cleaning, as if cleaning could save us. And it's cleaning that keeps us from noticing that we could. We could live in peace in any moment. That, to me, is what's so poignant. That, to me, is the whole point of our practice in all the different ways we talk about it, to really recognize, cellularly, the facts of life. And when we recognize it, coining doesn't make sense anymore. We don't have to uproot every moment of coining. When you see, oh, yeah. This is gonna go. In fact, it's already going. Before I even can enunciate what it is, it's gone. We just open up and appreciate. Clean stops making sense. But we clean because we think it'll make us happy. Look in your experience over the day when you find yourself suffering, frustrated, somehow unhappy. Look and see, sometimes it's clinging, sometimes it's the flip side, pushing something away, wanting it to be different. But look and see then, do I really believe in this moment, what the Buddha is teaching, that if something is impermanent, it can never give me lasting happiness? It can only give transitory pleasure, the pleasure of being with something pleasant. Now it makes sense, but when I look and see, do I really believe that? When I'm clinging, no, I don't believe it. I think if I can have this, anything from another rice cake up to something really important and beautiful, my idea of an enlightenment experience, whatever it is, a, a child or a grandchild or a beautiful relationship, doesn't matter what, that claim is somewhere that he did say, nothing else did it, but this thing will really bring me happiness. So we need to look and see what our mind is doing, how we're getting caught in that investing somewhere in the land in this experience. And this brings us to the second piece, which is again, the cause of this anguish, the confusion, is clinging or really are deeply ingrained habits of mind, both clinging and pushing away, and confusion, basically not even noticing what's happening but as someone someone said to me in the last retreat, they said, uh, so let's face it, I've noticed that I'm never clinging to an unpleasant experience when it (laughs) leaves. When your knee pain goes away, you probably don't experience massive clinging and suffering about that. So it's a clue that part of our lack of understanding, rooted in not seeing impermanence, but also in the first aspect of the First Noble Truth, that... Pleasant experience is basically good. An unpleasant experience is wrong or bad or a mistake. And neutral experience, well, it doesn't even exist. And in our not noticing that and the way the Buddha describes experience, experience just meaning our sense experiences, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling sensations of the body. And the whole mental realm, thoughts, emotions, the mind is considered the sixth sense. And that's all that's happening. Those sixth sense experiences over and over and over and over. And they're just changing really rapidly, and they're moving back and forth between pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. And when you break it down like that, things stop seeming really so exciting. A group on said to me, what do you want? Something else to note? Because I was complaining about what was happening. You can note this or you can note that. What's the difference? <laughs> when Guy said, Sharon said, it really doesn't matter what's happening, that's what we need. If it's not this, it's that. And this is going to change anyway, and it'll turn to that. And if it's pleasant now, it's going to change to unpleasant, and then it'll change to pleasant, and then it'll be neutral, and then it'll be pleasant, and then it'll be neutral, and then it'll be, neutral, then it'll be unpleasant. Really pay attention moment to moment. That's all that's going on. We really stop getting quite so reactive to things when we begin to notice how fast they're changing, that how much I prefer pleasant really doesn't matter <laughs> because you're gonna get pleasant, you're gonna get unpleasant. I can fight it or not. Those are our basic choices. And it's, it's interesting to begin to look and see how deeply ingrained the habit of our mind is to evaluate experience in terms of how pleasant or unpleasant it is. So again, just noticing. When something's pleasant, we usually don't think there's a mistake or that we've stopped, started going backwards in our practice or in our life. In a subtle way, and I see this going on more and more subtly, but the same process in my practice, in my life, where I think I'm just noticing things letting it be, it comes, it goes, I like it, I don't like it, letting it be. But then I'll notice something very, very subtly I've started trying to aim my experience towards having some pleasant meditation experience arise. It's so subtle, this habit, to think somehow that's better. And really, freedom's about just being aware without identifying, without getting lost in this reactivity to whatever's happening. But if you look at it, we aim so much of our life. How many of our decisions have we made on the basis of pleasant experience, or of hoping to have more pleasant experience? It's a little shocking sometimes if you look at it. We read you this story about the Buddha's attendant, Ananda. You've probably heard of Ananda. He was the Buddha's cousin, and for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life, he was his main attendant. And he's a great character in all the Buddhist texts because he comes across as being very human. He's the one who's always... He's partially awakened, but not completely awakened. He's a totally generous, loving, compassionate man, and he's always the one who's interceding the people who come, you know, and trying to get him in to see the Buddha and trying to help people. So he's, he's, And he's always the one who says, I, I don't get it quite, you know. There's a lot of stories where, where Ananda will say something and the Buddha will say, not so, Ananda, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, correct it a little bit. So so one, one warms to Ananda. Anyway, this is just a nice story about him. He was sent by the Buddha on a mission and he passed by a well near a village and saw Pakati, a young outcast woman, and asked her for water to drink. Now background. You know in India at that time the caste system was very strong and an outcast there were very strict rules about outcasting we're supposed to touch. She couldn't you even give water to someone of a higher caste. And a monk isn't allowed to ask for anything except for water, either. So that he could ask her for water, that's the only thing he could ask for. Pakati said O monk, I am too humbly born to give you water. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am of low caste. Meaning, be contaminated just because she shouldn't even hand him water. And Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda water. She thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. Having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, the woman went to the Buddha and said, O Lord, help me and let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see him and minister unto him, for I love Ananda. So you see how easily some pleasant experience could completely guide a person's life. He was nice to me for one minute. I love him, I want to devote the rest of my life to him. And the Buddha, being wise, understood the emotions of her heart, and he said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you don't understand your own sentiments. It's not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice towards you and practice it towards others. So that's a nice story. But the message I get out of it is how easily we misplaced our pleasure at pleasant feeling, and build a whole life story around it. So you think, oh, that's really nice. He's kind. That feels really good, and then go and act like that to someone else. No, I follow him the rest of my life. So noticing pleasant feelings, great. Appreciate it. It's going to go. It's nothing to build a life around. It's nothing to build a meditation around. It's just as much a part of life as unpleasant or neutral. See if you notice anything neutral. It's getting really hard in this culture to find anything neutral. The breath, once in a while, your steps, they're much more neutral than the beauty of the environment. Just see if you can notice it once in a while. That's all. So our awareness practice is to begin to notice these habits of our mind. Not with judgment, It's just how we've been conditioned. But in the noticing of them, we don't have to be like robots, you know, driven by the craving for the pleasant, driven by moving away from the unpleasant, judging our experience, our life, in terms of that. Spacing out and looking for intensity when something neutral happens. It's been an interesting phenomenon to me to notice over the years of, teaching retreats and talking with people in the middle of retreats. And often on long retreats, I teach a three-month retreat every year. And it's the same as this. I mean, the same stuff goes on only for three months.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know, on the second day. They too, can you imagine how they feel on the second day, just like you do? <laughs> like, oh my God, three months. But it changes. That <laughs> there come places where things get the mind gets more quiet. It gets more neutral. There's not sometimes always huge highs and lows. And to have people coming in and saying, my God, nothing's happening. You know, I'm so bored or I'm afraid. And then coming in the next week and going, oh, I get it. It's calm. I get it. It's peace. But we almost can't even recognize it or appreciate it when we're so hyper-stimulated. That's part of the dullness of the first couple of days of retreat. You know, the mind is either stimulated, well, okay, bedtime. Um, and after a while, the energy comes back and we can deal with more subtlety and actually come to love the calmness and the peace. But at first, we don't necessarily. Because we go in for the pleasure. We go in for the pleasure. That's how we've been trained. That is what our culture is constantly, but not just our culture. I mean, the Buddha was just teaching this, you know, it's the same all through the years. So, when we don't look in our habit, we tend to think it's the change that's causing us anguish. Something pleasant goes away, we're stuck with something we don't like. It's the pain that causes our anguish. But actually, when we begin to pay attention, we see that it's our misunderstanding the way things are that creates the anger. It's our reactions to what's happening. What's happening isn't really that important. In terms of freedom, of course in our life, how we act and respond is important. I'm not trying to say that, not the falling into emptiness where it doesn't matter what I do. But in terms of freedom, getting what we want and getting rid of what we don't want is not the way of freedom. Being able to be really present without getting lost in reactivity is the place of real intimate connection in ourselves with life, a real opening into peace. A peace that's always available, but we ignore it because we're so entranced by our reactions to experience. Really look at the stuff that goes on in the day, the sensations and the thoughts about it, and the emotions about it, and the future projection and the past memory. Sometimes it helps if I'm in a humorous mood with myself. It's like, oh my God, no matter what happens within two seconds, it's turned into, how does this affect me? Me, the center of every single thing, of how everybody walks by, whether someone flushes the toilet, how everyone eats in the dining room, everything that happens all day is assessed and reacted to in some way in terms of how it affects. Me. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. I like it, I don't like it. It's really disgusting when you look at it closely. But you can't take it personally. It's just our habit. There's an image that I really like a lot about how we're so involved in our reactions that it keeps us from recognizing the peace of fear when we stop getting so involved and just land in openness. It says as if we're in prison and we're trying to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. You might find some relations too I has spend the last couple of days here. You're in this prison and you're doing everything you can to get comfortable. Fixing the furniture, turning up the heat, working out your little routine, changing the pictures on the wall, writing notes to Lynn, you know, finding the right time to go up to the lunch table early, late, middle how to avoid the lines. Believe me, I've spent a lot of time in so I really have seen all the angles. And we spend so much time with that that we fail to notice that the door is wide open and we could walk out anytime. We just don't even notice that because the picture's a little askew and maybe there's some way I could get a more comfortable blanket and maybe I could just adjust the heat a little bit. And this big empty space isn't anything really gripping to notice about it. I mean, there's nothing really there, is there? It's just space. And we're more pulled to things that we can react to. So what goes on as we begin to see that everything changes? Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral are gonna come and go. We don't have to fight the unpleasant. We don't have to hold on to the pleasant and just let go. The space becomes more and more inviting, whether we experience it as space, or silence, or ease, or quietness, or love, or connectedness, or unity. There's a lovely phrase from the Buddha, uh, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by me, namely liberation of the heart to non-clinic. Just letting go of being so involved in all our assessments and reactions and interpretations and analyses and likes and dislikes, letting go and then learning how to really be intimately present, wholly present, not letting go and spacing out somewhere, but really being here. doesn't matter, then, if there's a headache, if your back hurts, that there's a lot of real, deep suffering in this world. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's others, sometimes it's tell the difference. It doesn't change any of that. But this peace, this part of non-cleaning, is always accessible. And it's not like we have to have some amazing meditation state. It's just those moments when we're really present and awake, And the heart and mind Let's go for a minute, just stop trying to fix everything, to manipulate everything, to control everything. Which doesn't work anyway, but somehow we don't get it. A Tibetan text, talking about this state of peace. Um, It's not really a state, even. If you look for a state, it's so hard to talk. Because then you look for some state that doesn't change a thing, you know, and we're back on the wheel again. The mystery. Not knowing, now there's using the word state too, okay. Let's remember there's no state, there's no thing, it's just open space, non clean. Not knowing that this state is within oneself, how amazing that one searches for it elsewhere. Although it is clearly manifest like the radiance of the sun, how amazing that so few see it no matter how much happiness and sorrow is experienced how amazing that this state the Buddha mind Buddha heart is never impaired or improved in the slightest this self awareness is naturally free from the very first how amazing that it is liberated by just resting at ease in whatever happens that's a mindfulness practice, liberated by resting at ease in whatever happened. We're practicing how to do that. And that's the fourth truth, the path, we really, the path of the Eightfold Path, and really, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the core of it is mindfulness. The ability to be fully present, connected, resting at ease, in whatever happens, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Without mindfulness, we're just drawn by the habits of mind. With mindfulness, there's the potential to let go and really appreciate the beauty, appreciate the unity we have with others in our suffering, just appreciate the beauty of this fleeting moment, and then be just as present for this next moment. Without it, we're like this there's a great sutta from the Buddha, I'll just describe it, and he's saying what we're like with and without mindfulness. He says, imagine six different types of animals all tied together. He says, uh, a snake, a crocodile, a bird, like an eagle, a dog, a hyena, and a monkey. And they're all tied, they're each tied on a rope, and then it's just tied in one big knot in the middle, these six animals. So you can imagine they're just all going up and pulling in any direction. And he says, so you know, they each try to pull to their own habitat. The snake pulls to the ground, the crocodile pulls to the water, the monkey pulls to the tree, and they're just being pulled in this mass back and forth, and the strongest one at the moment will win, right? Probably the crocodile gets into the water. So he's saying, For a person whose mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the mind and of the body, of the six senses, is undeveloped, is unpracticed, says it's just like that because it says our six senses are like those six animals. So the eye struggles to reach pleasing forms and unpleasing forms are considered repulsive. And the nose struggles to reach pleasing odors and unpleasing odors are considered repulsive. So you get the drift, right? The tongue struggles for pleasing flavors, the body struggles for pleasing sensations, the mind struggles for pleasing mental states, the unpleasant ones are considered repulsive. And he's saying without mindfulness, that's how we're living our life. The sixth sense is just running after pleasant and away from unpleasant, one after the other after the other. It's exhausting. He says that one who has established mindfulness of the body dwells with a mind and heart unlimited. He so understands as it really is the liberation of the heart, the liberation of mind, the liberation by wisdom. You dwell with a heart and mind unlimited. Mindfulness is like, if there's a stake, that you put it in the ground and they can't go anywhere and just quiet down and lie down and come to rest. I like that age. So that's our practice. And it is a practice. To learn how to be that present just for a moment without getting so entranced by our reactions, by our fears, by being pulled hither and thither, by pleasant and unpleasant. To find that place of ease and freedom, resting at ease in whatever arises. So we have some more days of many, many moments each day, and no matter what's happening, no matter what's happening, it doesn't matter. It's an opportunity to find that place of resting at ease, really, no matter what's happening at any moment of the day. And if you miss it in this moment, that's okay. Because now there's this moment. It's always available to you. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.